Hey, I got lots to say about Redford. Just keep me in mind, okay? Oh, okay. Um, all right. Now, now you do know, Miss Gertie, that he can't see you. <laughs> uh, that's fine. No, I know that. And that's stupid. God. <laughs> okay, Gertie. Yep. Well, let's just say that uh, Madame Showgirl is not as conservatively dressed tonight as she usually is. <laughs> well, well. Oh, brother. I, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I wonder what's in the old concession stand tonight. I'm afraid to ask. I, I think I saw. <laughs> I think I saw some cherries on the bar. Oh God! Did you have to say that? Oh, Good evening. Welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater. Tonight we're going to be discussing an early '80s drama. Based upon a book. Please take your seats. Matinee Minutia is about to begin. Well, hello there, Mr. Smelly. How are you this fine evening? Uh, pretty good. <clears throat> uh, uh, DJ, I got the heat on. Uh, I mean, wait a minute. I'm not at home. I'm at the theater. We have the heat on <laughs> at the Marionette Theater. Well, that would explain why you were ba- why you were banging on the radiator. <laughs> yeah, no, it is the old timey uh, radiant uh, radiator heat, folks. It knocks uh, and makes noises while we watch movies. But oh, you know, I thought that was Gertie's knees. But okay, ha! <laughs> ah, very funny. DJ, yeah. Oh, so boy. you know, it was All Hallows Eve recently, Toppy. Did did you survive the trick or treaters? Did you get egged or TP'd? Oh, not Naria one. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> we, no, nobody comes down this road. <laughs> not today. Uh, I, I used to go down this road because I lived on this road when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I trick or treated on this road, but nobody trick or treats on this road anymore, and haven't for the last 15 20 years so it's just a, it's just over with i guess we we live in a development that was started in the 60s so uh, a lot of the original homeowners have retired or you know their their kids are living here but not a lot of kiddos and hubby and i usually try to go out for dinner that night just so we don't have to you know Uh, buy the candy that we shouldn't be eating anyways, but so many places are still closed and are just takeout only. And uh, we stopped by this Chinese place nearby. And, uh, you know, it was the only place that we could get food that wasn't cash only. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it oh, was so you you do more than turn the lights off. You leave. Oh, we normally do. Yes, we got takeout, brought it home, and the best thing ever happened on Halloween, we got to watch the season premiere of Doctor Who. Um, oh. But uh, it's a little bittersweet because it's that actress's last season. And, um, well, you know, case Sarah, I suppose. But, uh, you know, speaking of tricks and some treats, um, I hear that our senior showgirl makes a mighty fine jack-o'-lantern. Are you in the house, Gertie? Well, you know I am. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a big fat jacket lantern and uh, I stole uh, candy from the concession stand because I ain't going to buy my own. And uh, 
I, I handed it out at my home. So sorry about that. Anyways, uh, it was a fun Halloween. I dressed as a whore. No, I mean, I dressed as a burlesque <laughs> performer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, everyone loved it. Hmm. Well, madame, uh, I do believe that it is time to clue the folks in on what we're going to be talking about tonight. Could you get yourself downstairs there and well, get to warm yeah, up? Yeah. yeah, right away. And then I got to say something about Robert Redford. Okay, I'm, I'm going down. I'm going down right now. All righty. Conrad is a teenaged boy who's recently lost his brother in a tragic accident. He's trying hard to move on, but he's struggling. And he eventually tries to take his own life. Mom is an old-fashioned sort who thinks the family should keep their problems private. But Dad thinks differently. The loss of their eldest son has certainly shaken up this perfect, upper-class, nuclear suburban family. Can they learn to talk about their problems? Can husband and wife draw from each other's strengths? Based upon a popular book by Judith Guest, grab a coat and some hot French toast. You know, you can't save French toast. It's time for Ordinary People. Hit it, boys! What do you get when you take a dash to the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Okay, so as our senior showgirl was letting you know there, we're talking about a film from 1980, and uh, that was a a big year for movies, but this was a book that came out in 76, and stars Mary Tyler Moore, everyone knows Mary, Donald Sutherland, who was in a film we discussed last year here on Matinee Minutia, Max Dugan Returns. And uh, has Mr. Timothy Hutton and Judd Hirsch, um, who uh, was just driving a taxi on TV about this time. Yep. So um, before further ado, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and play the trailer for this film. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's hear it. In this typical town, in this comfortable home, three ordinary people are about to live an extraordinary story. But starting all over again, the lying, the covering up, the disappearing for hours, I will not stand for it. I can't stand it. I really can't. What kind of psychiatrist are you? They all believe in dreams. I do believe in dreams. Only sometimes I want to know what's happening when you're awake. I don't want to see any doctors or counselors. This is my family. And if we have problems, then we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home. I knew something was wrong even before he tried to kill himself. I think it is a very private matter. You never came to the hospital. How do you know about the hospital? Your mother did come to the hospital, Conrad, and you know that. I just don't know how to deal with it anymore. Why are you asking me? Why are you trying to make me mad? Are you mad? No. He provokes people. I would never have let him put electricity in my head. You blame me for the whole thing. Can't you see anything except in terms of how it affects you? I miss it sometimes. 
the hospital. But that was a hospital. This is the real world. Did it hurt? Never really talked about it. How long are you going to punish yourself? When are you going to quit? I loved him. What in hell has happened? That she hates me. Can't you see that? Mothers don't hate their sons. I mean, there's someone besides your mother you got to forgive. I can't! You better make sure that your kids are good and safe. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Just do one wrong thing. And what was the one wrong thing you did? Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, Timothy Hutton, in an extraordinary story of ordinary people. Alright, Toppy, so this came out in 1980, and of course, no secret, I was just a mere baby, but uh, I'm guessing perhaps you might have had a chance to caught this in its initial run? I did, and was so taken by it, and moved by it, I I, I didn't just see it once, I, I I think I may have seen it three or four times because, of course, this was after uh, uh, Star Wars uh, or even before, for me, King Kong, the Dino De Laurentiis movie, or even Logan's Run, where I learned that, oh, I can go back to the theater and watch it again. (laughs) We only learned that behavior around that time. And uh, by the time Ordinary People came around, I was used to going back many times for movies that I liked. So I saw this three or four times uh, when it came out. Hmm. Well, so this was uh, in 1980, and it was uh, a little while ago, uh, Toppy. Um, What do we normally do to put things in perspective? Well, you got to set the stage, DJ. Set the stage. All right. So this is the U.S. history in 1980. World history in 1980. The comic strip The Far Side first began appearing in newspapers. Oh. President Carter approved a 1.5 billion bailout of Chrysler in 1980. The U.S. defeats the Soviet Union in hockey at the 13th Winter Olympics. Oh, wow. And uh, President Carter also announced the U.S. would boycott the upcoming Summer Olympics, which would be held in their hometown, Moscow. Do you know why he did that? Was it their involvement in the Middle East? Um, Why did he do that? I think it was the Cold War. You know, we we were opposed to communism. Um, Yeah, but they were doing something. Hmm. Voyager 1 space probe confirmed the existence of the Saturn moon Janus. So, Saturn has moons. Who knew? Uh, The U.S. severs diplomatic relations with Iran in the Middle East there. The Pennsylvania lottery was rigged by six men, which included the host of the drawing in 1980. Oops. Yes. Inmate with the longest served prison sentence is released from jail after 68 years, and his crime was in 1911. 
Good lord. Yeah, talk about a wasted life. Uh, the Department of Education began operation in 1980. Oh, well, you know, Nancy was in the White House. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back was released in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, some nostalgia here, some Americana. Pac-Man, the best-selling arcade game of all time, is released then. Oh. Senator Ted Kennedy won several state primaries, but failed to get the Democratic Party nomination for presidency in 1980. A few more items here. Former California Governor Ronald Reagan, he won the Republican Party nomination that year. And Robert Redford, uh, what a quinky dink. We're talking about his film here tonight. Made his directorial debut with Ordinary People. And Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, the uh, man who was married to the lady in the prior film we discussed, Repo, our Halloween special. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera debuted in London's West End in 1980. So, Toppy, we have some folks that uh, were on the old turnstile there. They came into the world, they left. Uh, Who who was that? Tommy had... Did, did Tommy Hash Browns just post a picture of the uh, the Bigfoot that fought Six Million Dollar Man? I think so. Anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, there were, in 1980 there were some celebrity uh, boys and deaths, and uh, uh, first of all, Zoe Deschanel, uh, actress uh, in Elf the movie. And New Girl, um, and uh, that's uh, also Christina Ricci. Ricci. Who is in, mm-hmm. Ricci, who is in Adam's Family. And then that there, uh, uh, Macaulay Culkin, uh, he was in that Home Alone series, don't you know, uh, was born. Uh, Chris Pine. Good God. <laughs> Are you telling me he was born? Oh, for heaven's sake. Yikes. Yes, good he old was, Captain uh, Kirk is younger than me. Yeah, he is Star Trek uh, 09 and uh, Wonder Woman. He was in. Uh, but that year also saw the passing of uh, legendary uh, Steve McQueen, actor, and John Lennon, the musician. Yes, we lost before his time. He was shot outside his home. All right. Well, Ordinary People. This was a film that uh, hit the silver screen in 1980. And we like to tell you about some things that might have been competing for your attention that year. Because as as Toppy mentioned, he saw this several times and he had some options. So, you know, he chose to see it uh, more than once. It was that good. So 116 films came out in 1980. It was a bang up year for films and uh that included in the top of the box office the empire strikes back which brought in 200 million which by the way for me was the uh end of my infatuation with star wars because by the time the third one came out i was so disappointed with the third one that i just couldn't have cared less because empire strikes back was so good Nothing held up after that. Anyways, that's just me. I was going to say, does what's-his-name know you fell out of love with him after the accident? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Number two in the box office that year was one of my personal favorites with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton and Jane Fund. I'm talking about 925, which brought in $100 million. And then a film with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. What a combination there. I, they, I, I don't think there was a movie they made together that I didn't enjoy. Stir Crazy came out at number three that year. Now, because, of course, here at Matinee Minutia, we love the underdog. Surprisingly, ordinary people, it didn't get too far on the, uh, you know, didn't get to the uh, lower rungs of the ladder. No, like, it, it did It did all right. Yeah. It, it was considered a success. It was. It brought in $54 million and it was number 10. So, it, you know, it was up there. Now, to put things in perspective... The film that did one better, the the rung above Ordinary People, was a film with James Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, a little film called The Blues Brothers. It's legendary, of course. And then uh, just one below Ordinary People at number 11 that year is another of my personal favorites with Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall, who was a busy lady in 1980. She's in The Shining also, which we've talked about. And that was Popeye, which brought in $49 million at a number yeah. 11 slot. Uh, now, just just think about that whole list of movies that year, how diverse it is, all the different genres. And I, I, I don't think we've got that today. Not in the cinema. I guess if you consider all the streaming, I think we have that diversity, but... When, if we're just talking about movies that are released to cinemas today, the, we don't got that kind of diversity anymore. No, the majority of the films that I see adverts for are the, um, you know, the car crashes and the chases, the action films. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, where this story of ordinary people originated, because I think it's interesting. And that's with the uh, the lady who authored it in uh in a book it was her first novel it was published in 1976 and just like the movie it tells the story of a year in the life of the Jarretts, an affluent suburban family trying to cope with the aftermath of two traumatic events and uh, she started it as a short story and uh, she just kept writing and found herself writing more and more and she started exploring the characters more and more. And then she was like 200 pages in and she said, okay, I, th I think I've got something more than a short story. And then it took her three years to complete it. And uh, it, as I say, it was her first novel. It was very popular. And she focused the story on the psychology of the characters particularly Conrad. And she says, I wanted to explore the anatomy of depression. She wanted to explore how it works, why it happens to people, how you can go from being down, but able to handle it to being so down that you don't even want to handle it. And then taking a radical step with your life, trying to commit suicide and failing at that, coming back to the world and having to act normal when in fact you've been changed forever. So that, that is encapsulated perfectly 
in the movie, and it all comes from this book. And uh, it's not surprising that Judith, Judith Guest would have perhaps written a novel like this because when she was at the University of Michigan, where she graduated uh, around 1960, her studies were English and psychology. So she was very interested in these topics. Hmm. Well, uh, so before we go ahead and uh, discuss the magician behind this film, because the Marionette Theater is a celebrated venue who've uh, seen many a splendid thing in our halls here. We been uh, host to the days of vaudeville and we've had magicians before we talk about the director we'll, we'll just take a, a moment to discuss the story so um you know as i said uh, i did not see this when it was new of course uh but having watched this recently i think that this is a story that translates to today uh, most certainly because i think that uh for the better at least attitudes towards mental health have made um, positive progress. I mean, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times those things happen because of tragedy. I mean, when I was growing up in, in school, the closest thing that I got to a therapist was the guidance counselor. You know, it uh, you sat down and tried to figure out what you were going to do with your life and where you were going to go to school. And, you know, there was no talk about do you feel okay? Are you safe at home? Or, you know, uh, do you feel like you have all the tools that you need to be successful in life? None of that talk. And uh, I think that ordinary people um, puts that all into perspective because you have the, uh, the mother character by Mary Tyler Moore, Beth. She's sort of a, uh, an old-fashioned type because she wants to keep her family affairs private. And she even gets upset with her husband when they're at a party. And he lets it slip to one of their friends that their son is seeing a psychiatrist. Right. And this is just casual conversation at the party that she overhears. and It does not sit well with her. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it just uh, reminds me of the um, environment that I grew up in the sense that um, my grandfather grew up you know, during the depression. And there are studies, of course, of how people were affected by that period of time in our nation's history. But, um, you know, my, my father is partly why I do this show. He skipped school when his family was on the outs and it was his happy thought. He went to the movies. So in that sense, I can appreciate the story because just like the mother Beth felt that matters like this were private, there was a time that my father felt that his own troubles were not something that burdened a man. If you were a man and you were a husband and a father, the things that bothered you in life we're all swept under the rug just so long as your kids had food on the table and clothes on their back. Fortunately, you know, uh, as we've made progress uh, before his last years, uh, my, my father passed away at 62. He was a lifelong smoker. Um, 
he did find help. He had depression and he learned that it came from his mother's side of the family. So there is no shame in knowing these things because anything, well, uh, you know, anything that can help will make you stronger. So uh, there, there is no shame in asking for help, especially if it means you now have the tools to cope with things. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's interesting. I, uh, my own family, you know, I, I could just relate so much of this movie, uh, to my own family mm-hmm. and just uh, the, Oh my Lord, the complex relationship between my parents and the, well, I mean, <clears throat> my father who was deeply psychologically damaged by uh, his angulosing spondylitis that came on when he was just a kid and being a cripple at an early age. And the mind games that plays with you. But also, just it wasn't talked about. I mean, as much as my father was suffering, we didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about it. Um, it was kind of like, you know, la, 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 here we are, and uh, life went on, but it just wasn't discussed. And my father really didn't seek any deep psychological help until later in life. And I don't think it, you know, frankly, didn't help him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he had a bad therapist. I don't know. But anyways. It's certainly generational. You know, like I said, um, we've made strides and progress. And nowadays, it's more accepted that this is part of regular health. It's just another page in the manual of life. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got clothes that fit you. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, you can do something about it. Or you can choose not to, but the bottom line is, is that are you happy with yourself? And that's, you know, some of what uh, is is um, brought to light with this story of ordinary people. So, yeah, and let's let's reflect just a moment on, you know, 1980 when this came out, uh, 1976 when the book was written. Uh, entirely different attitudes about seeking mental health guidance you know it just wasn't a thing and it did have you know it was something of a taboo to talk about you really didn't want people to know you were seeing a shrink maybe in crazy hollywood everybody talked about it i don't know (laughs) and it was popular but basically in everyday life most everywhere you, you just didn't talk about it. Now, flash forward to today, and of course, we're doing a podcast here, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. What's one of the best, the biggest advertisers on podcasts right now? It's an outfit that advertises uh, mental health guidance uh, online. Oh, yeah, and they even have, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but an Olympic athlete that, uh, you know, is uh, is a spokesperson for them. That could be. Anyways, the point is that now it's like, hey, you take care of your body, 
And it's called Take Care of Your Mind. It's just a completely different atmosphere than when this movie was made. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say something about um, (laughs) generational and that, but uh, anyways... We are at about the halfway point in our program, so if you'll sit back for about three minutes, we're going to entertain you with an interview from 1980 on the Dallas Morning News with actor Timothy Hutton, who played the son Conrad in Ordinary People. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Robert Redford has made his movie debut as a director with Ordinary People. In uh, let's take this, the Christmas tree scene and the confrontation with your mother, played by Mary Tyler Moore. Um, what what did he tell you, or what did he do about setting up that scene that that uh, that you leaned upon? Uh, well, the way he would approach uh, a scene, in this case, the Christmas tree scene, he would he would uh, watch the three of us in the rehearsal. You know, he would say, "Okay, let's uh, we're doing this scene now." Um, everybody away from the set except the actors um, and, my <clears throat> and, and myself. Uh, so there were four of us, Redford, Mary, Donald, and, and, and myself. And uh, he would watch us uh, go through the movements and, and uh, say the words you know, that, that, that we had to say. And he would watch what was happening. He would look at Mary and see what was happening with her character and what she was doing. And then he would watch Donald and then me. And uh, he had a great sense of character balance. So he was able to look at these three people and uh, the characters they were playing and say, okay, well, I've got something coming from here that's not quite corresponding with something over here that Tim's doing, and then Donald's doing it. So let's see, if I have more over here, less over here, and then a little bit more over here, you know, he was wonderful at all that, bringing it all together and making, sort of orchestrating uh, uh, each scene and, uh, and, and telling us, you know, exactly what was going on in the scene and even beyond the words. Because in, in, in a lot of, especially this movie, there's, there's a lot said underneath the words, subtext. Now, of course, that scene, in contrast with, let's say, the scene where you have to call the girl and ask her for a date, uh, there's such a contrast of emotion there. Uh, did you just pretty much work that out yourself, Tim, or did he help you in, in that contrast? Well, I think a little of both, actually, you know. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, ideal working uh, situation with any director is when, when you're both able to, uh, uh, if, if there's an open uh, channel of communication, uh, and uh, there was that with Redford, he encouraged that, you know, suggestions and, and was open to ideas. Uh, in that particular scene uh, with the with the girl, um, I might have brought something to rehearsal, an idea or something, and, and uh, he might have said, oh, that's good, that's funny, yeah, let's go with that, and then maybe... Uh, he would say, now, at the end, why don't you try doing this? You know, uh, so, so uh, he would tell me, and then I would try it. And, you know, that's one of my favorite scenes because it's a, it's a light moment in a film that is, is on the whole, pretty heavy. You know, not heavy uh, uh, in the sense of a downer, but it's uh, a very intense film. I'm not home. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and before we continue, that was uh, yeah, that was Timothy Hutton, and before we... who won uh, an Academy Award for his performance in this movie. But uh, <clears throat> we're going to talk about him. But let's 
get to the director, mm-hmm. Robert Redford, uh, it's a pretty special um, movie to burst out of the gates with as his debut director uh, uh, movie. Uh, so his full name's Charles Redford, or Charles Robert Redford Jr., born 36. Um, he's been a lot of things, an actor, uh, then a director. He's an activist. Uh, I think people think of him prominently as the founder of the Sundance uh, uh, Film um, Festival. Festival, yeah. I'm very highly respected for that, which, which, if anybody doesn't know, is a festival that supports independent filmmaking. Uh, filmmaking that's, you know, not part of the, the Hollywood system and uh, very celebrated for that. Um, he's uh, won two Academy Awards, uh, a British Academy Film Award, two Golden Globes, uh, the Cecil B. DeMille Award. And believe it or not, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Good grief. Uh, Time Magazine named him in 2014 one of the 100 most influential people in the world. I think it's part of his activism. So, Redford started out uh, trying to be an actor. He moved in the late 1950s to New York City, which is a great place to be at that time because he... A TV was in production there, and also uh, lots of stage work. So that's what a lot of people did to find work, and uh, he got work. His Broadway debut was in a small role in something called Tall Story in 1959. He followed that with parts in The Highest Tree, Sunday in New York, but his biggest Broadway success was as the stuffy newlywed husband of Elizabeth Ashley in the original 1963 cast of Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park. And uh, he was very successful in that. Um, he was also doing television. You, you can see him in an episode of Twilight Zone, for example, and, and, and a lot of other uh, series that were shooting back then. But he also... Early on in 1962, uh, was nominated for an Emmy uh, as Best Supporting Actor for his performance in The Voice of Charlie Point. Um, so, you know, he's he's making a name for himself. So Redford did get on to the movie, big movie screen in 1962 with his debut in War Hunt. That's, uh, then he starred with Natalie Wood in Inside Daisy Clover in 65. He got a Golden Globe for that as the best new star. He was he had the good looks, folks. He was stunningly handsome. And, uh, hey, people loved to look at him. But his breakout big smash success in the movies was the wonderful Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969. God, that was a long time ago. And if you look at that movie, uh, you just wouldn't guess it was that old, but it was. It was a huge success. It made him a major star. Uh, Then he did a a critical box office hit with Jeremiah Johnson, and that was 73. And then 
he had the greatest hit of his career ever, ever. And that was the blockbuster movie, The Crime Caper, called The Sting, where he was reunited with Paul Newman. He was in uh, but he was in Bradford with in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, he was nominated for an Academy Award for that. Also the same year, my mother's favorite movie, The Way We Were, uh, Robert Redford, picture it. Robert Redford opposite Barbara Streisand in a lush romantic melodrama, The Way We Were. Oh, my God, people ate it up with a stick. And uh, finally, uh, he gained popular uh, and a critical success in all the president's men in 1976 with Dustin Hoffman, which was a landmark film for both of them. So let's get to his directorial debut in the 19 in 1980. And uh, ordinary people. It was one of the most critically and publicly acclaimed films of the freaking decade. It won four Oscars, including Best Picture and the Academy Award for Best Director for Redford himself. I mean, this was hugely popular and successful. But uh, he did continue acting. He was in Brubaker in 1980. He was I and Out of Africa with uh, Who's Her Face mm-hmm. in 1985. Uh, I can't think of her name. Uh, it was enormous. It was another enormous box office success. Uh, Out of Africa won like seven freaking Oscars, including Best Picture. Uh, then uh, came his third film as a director, and it's my personal favorite. A River Runs Through It in 1982. Good Lord, that movie. Oh, oh my God. Uh, he won he won on to receive Best Director and Best Picture nominations for his acclaimed movie in 1995, Quiz Show. And uh, he received a second Academy Award, and this was for Lifetime Achievement in 2002. And uh, uh, so what a notable career and what a smash movie to come out of the gate with ordinary people but let's talk about the cast dj all righty uh we got mary tyler moore right off the bat we do and mary played a character very contrary to her usually sunny demeanor in fact uh robert redford um offered her the role and she was surprised and uh in later years she would always refer to ordinary people as the holy grail of her career because it gave her an opportunity to play something different. So Mary Tyler Moore was born in Brooklyn and Ordinary People was Moore's first film in 11 years. She'd been acting in television during the early 50s with a series of appearances in commercials for the Hot Point brand of appliances. You, you folks that uh, have ah. rented apartments and you'll know the Hot Point brand. Um, Then these commercials aired during Ozzy and Harriet. Now, although she remained active in TV with background roles on shows like The George Burns Show and The Schlitz Playhouse, 
It wasn't mm-hmm. until 1961 that she would be cast in her first supporting role as Laura Petrie in The Dick Van Dyke Show, of course. Oh, <laughs> Moore would play the role in all 158 episodes of its five-year run, and after which she would appear in four films, including Ugh, one of They them. were all terrible. <laughs> yes, but we like terrible. And, uh, <laughs> bargain bin, bottom, thanks. Yes, please. Uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie came out in 67, and you'd probably be shocked to know I have a copy. Uh, ah. With Julie Andrews and Carol Channing. Oh, um, you know, looking very oh, much like Marilyn Monroe in her youth and that. Uh, and then in 1970, Mary Tyler Moore would be cast in the lead in the Mary Tyler Moore show, of course, which ran seven seasons with 168 episodes. And before her passing, because she did pass in recent years in 2017, she had 78 acting credits. Now, her last roles were a reprisal of her Dick Van Dyke show character in a reunion TV movie of the same name in 2016. Now, in 2011, she had two guest appearances in the wildly popular Betty White sitcom Hot in Cleveland on uh, the TV Land channel. So that brings us to uh, her on-screen hubby, Calvin. And... She was a spokesman for diabetes because that's basically what took her life uh, so early. She had, you know, she could have lived, she was lived a very active, healthy life. Um, but but uh, complications from diabetes took her from us. Anyways, Donald Sutherland <clears throat> played Calvin, uh, the father, uh, to Conrad. And his wife, Beth, played by Mary Tyler Moore. He was born in Canada. I did not know that. But he was born in Canada. Uh, He went to England, studied acting at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. So it's pretty serious about it. (laughs) And he has starred in several dozen films prior to Ordinary People. I mean, he started, you know, in the early 60s. So he had a long career. But the film he did prior... To ordinary people was nothing personal. The nineteen he was Suzanne <laughs> Summers. Okay, I think I think we've mostly forgotten about that one. Uh, the film. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, it, I was just going to mention. I looked that up briefly because I'm like Suzanne Summers did a movie. Um, yeah, he played a lawyer in a film um, about uh, environmental law. Okay. Uh, not one of his most remembered movies. Uh, the movie he did after Ordinary People was Gas in 1981 with Howie Mandel. Good <laughs> <laughs> Lord. Okay, Guess what you're getting a copy of for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He seems kind of reckless at this point in his career. Uh, uh, most recently, though, uh, he had a reoccurring role in the 2020 HBO series The Undoing. Uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant was in that. Uh, it was about a wealthy New York City therapist whose family becomes involved in murder. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and previously, in 2018, uh, he was on the FX series Trust with Hilary Swank uh, and Brendan Fraser. That was about a 70s kidnapping of an heiress to an Italian oil fortune. 
Well, uh, most ironically, I don't know why this is like, I, I'm not sure what was ironic about this. No, but it I, says, iconic. Oh, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I misread folks. It's not ironically. It's iconically. <laughs> <laughs> iconically, Donald yeah. Sutherland played President Snow in the 2014-15 The Hunger Games. I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, and to date, Sutherland has 199 acting credits. Uh, I think he's just very well respected. And uh, he did a lot of uh, uh, movies in the uh, late 60s that were part of that whole new Hollywood scene. Uh, so he was kind of avant-garde for a while. I just remember uh, in my ute that he was the voice of Orange Juice. <laughs> Oh my God! For those commercials, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it was Tropicana Pure Premium or something like that. God, did they go that far back? <laughs> um, so uh, then, the breakout star of this movie, mm-hmm. the young Timothy Hutton. This was his first movie. DJ, tell us about him. All righty. So Timothy Hutton, he played the son, the the struggling boy who's trying to survive the loss of his brother. Conrad. Timothy Hutton was born in California. He's a West Coast or Gold Coast. Hutton began acting in television in the late 70s, and just prior to Ordinary People, he was cast in The Oldest Living Graduate, which was a TV movie. Uh, it was a, originally a play, apparently, in 1980, which starred Henry Fonda and Cloris Leachman. And he played a cadet in that. Now, Ordinary People was Hutton's first feature film. And within five years, he'd starred in another five films. So that's one film a year, keep you know, keeping the lights on, including Taps. And this was a film in 81, which starred Sean Penn and Tom Cruise. It was about a, uh, a military school and... Uh, they were gonna, they were in danger of losing their their land to a condo development, and uh, Hutton has appeared in over forty films. Most recently, starring in the twenty eighteen Netflix series The Haunting of Hill House. I know you've seen that, mm-hmm. and has also had supporting roles in ABC's How to Get Away with Murder. Murder. <laughs> twenty eighteen, which starred Viola Davis. And in 2019, he was in the Fox series Almost Family. Now, um, this was a uh, sort of an independent uh, series with some up-and-coming stars. You remember that movie, The Sixth Sense, with the kid that could see dead people? Well, his younger sister, Emily Osmond, was in this series Almost Family. Oh, did she grow up to be as ugly... Well, I don't know about that, Tapia. For those of you who uh, like larger gentlemen, um, I hear that uh, Haley Joel Osment is uh, easy on the eyes. Um, But anyways, uh, Almost Family was a uh, Fox series about a group of half-siblings whose connection is their sperm donor father. And currently, Hutton has 85 acting credits. So, so oh. I don't know what to say about the smash hit movie he did at the very start of his movie career. He was the right age. It was the right project. It was great writing. He did a brilliant 
performance. He got the Oscar. And then what? (laughs) I don't know. Where do you go from there? Anyways, you know, I don't know the answer to that, except uh, I think Ordinary People has remained his most well-known, most powerful uh, consummate performance uh, to this day. Uh, Judd Hirsch. Mm-hmm. Now, who would have thought? Uh, Robert Redford did the casting of this movie. And first of all, who would have thought he'd hire Mary Tyler Moore? But who would have thought he'd hire Judd Hirsch to be a psychiatrist in Ordinary People? Um, I don't know, but it worked. And uh, it worked really well. So Judd Hirsch, most people know him from that hit TV series, Taxi. Um, That started in 83, although I would have sworn it started before that. Anyways. He was a later addition to the series. He was? Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. He wasn't part of the initial cast. I didn't know that. Okay, that explains why freaking Hirsch uh, was in... Ordinary People in 1980 and mm-hmm. 83 says when he started Taxi. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the other way around. I thought he was in Taxi first. Okay. Anyways, you learn something every day here. Bad name, Manusha. So uh, what else did he do? Well, he was. Uh, he did a lot of guest work. Uh, for example, Colombo in 76 with Peter Falk. He was in on Rhoda with Valerie Harper. And uh, he was in something called Del Vecchio. Del, Vec- Del Vecchio, I think it was pronounced. 22 episodes of a CBS TV series about an LAPD detective who's studying to become a lawyer. Um, and then uh, after, <clears throat> after his role on Taxi and Ordinary People, uh, he'd star in a handful of TV movies. Um, in 88, he would land the lead in Dear John, a remake of a BBC series of the same name. That was about a man who leaves his wife for his best friend and the support group he attends ran four seasons. Um, uh, he kept busy with TV movies and guest appearances. Uh, for example, in 96, his roles as, as uh, Jeff Goldblum's character's father in independence day i forgot about that Mm -hmm. yeah he was an independence uh so movies like that would kind of keep him in the spotlight uh in 99 he started out of the cold with keith carradine and bronson pinchot about an american entertainer and an estonian woman torn apart by hate and prejudice 2017 he was cast in cbs's Superior Donuts. That was about a Chicago neighborhood donut shop with Katie Seagull. Uh, eh, let's see. How did, where did he wind up? 2019, maybe, was some of his last credits in a series of reoccurring appearances as the paternal grandfather in ABC's The Goldbergs. Oh, oh, this year, uh, by the way, uh, oddly enough, Hirsch is in a film called Burning at Both Ends with our uh, own Carrie Elvis. Uh, and to date, he's got about 83 acting roles. So uh, there you go. That is the cast. I think it was brilliantly cast. Mm-hmm. Everybody in this movie did their part so freaking good. 
You know, and uh, before we finish the discussion, just a couple of things I wanted to mention. We've got some trivia we'll mention briefly. But, um, you know, uh, on the note of mental health that we were discussing, the attitudes have changed, that we've made positive progress. If you are not already aware, folks, this is directed at you, our listening audience. In today's day and age, if you are gainfully employed, many, if not most, employers have a helpline for you to call if you are feeling troubled with your mental health and you need assistance. I've made use of this a few times in my life myself with different companies I've been with, and you always end up with a referral to a therapist to see, and you can choose if you want to continue on that. So they will provide you with those initial visits at the, on the company dime, so don't be well, afraid. If, if, if you're lucky. Yes. Um, uh, uh, I would Tommy Hash Browns in the chat room uh, chimed in uh, to Nay, Nay, he says, Judd Hirsch was in all 114 episodes of Taxi, so hmm. uh, he's, he's seen them all at least three times. I so I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, uh, I th- I sure thought he was in it from the beginning. Hmm. Um, uh, well, let's. Um, we we have a couple. Well, as I say, we have a couple of items of trivia. If you want to go ahead and uh, gander in that part. Uh, well, um, I did not know this, uh, but this uh, ordinary people. The book was banned uh, in in. Well, it was one of the most banned books in libraries. Why the hell do you suppose that is? Well, oh, it's because of a scene depicting two teens losing their virginity, which I don't think happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. Anyways, also the frank discussion of suicide. Well, gee, tons of kids commit suicide. Maybe they should learn about it. And graphic language. Oh, my. Uh I guess today it still remains very controversial in schools. In fact, the damn book was 52nd most challenged book in schools and libraries from 1990 to 1999, narrowly beating out, guess what? Well, now I can agree with this one. I'm not sure this book belongs in school libraries. American Psycho? I mean, I'm not a conservative fellow, but what the hell is American Psycho doing in public schools? For God's sake. Anyways, whatever. And I'm going to add a list, a book to that list of uh, things that should be banned. I remember in uh, middle school, maybe junior high, reading a book was called The Computer That Said Steal Me. And it was about a kid who lusted after a computer chess game. And the whole monologue in the book was it talking to him and convincing him that shoplifting was okay. Okay. (laughs) All righty then. Okay. So lastly, Mary Tyler Moore was shocked by Redford's offer that she portray Beth especially given her sunny, warm, and highly addictive, connective screen persona. She stated that in response to her surprise, Redford confided that he'd had her in mind for the role since the first time he'd read this book. Yeah. Let's talk about her performance, because it is a revelation. She's so good. You can't say French toast. (laughs) You can't say French toast. Scrape, scrape, scrape. (laughs) 
uh, I immediately forgot all about the Mary Tyler Moore show. I was totally <clears throat> immediately uh, taken with this new character, this ice cold mother in Ordinary People. My God, she was good in it. Oh, yeah. You know, it was very contrary to her regular character. And uh, very few actors are fortunate enough to be able to break out of that mold. I mean, it's it's literally what they call typecasting when you end up getting the same type of parts after each other. Uh, Famously, I guess Redford, you know, wanted to find out the the dark side of Mary Tyler Moore. That sounds hokey to me, but okay. <laughs> um, I remember, you know, alternating between feeling sympathetic towards her in the movie and just thinking, oh, fucking bitch. <laughs> uh, and that went on. I mean, it was so skillfully done, uh, mostly, you know, particularly the writing uh, and her performance, but the character you you just it she'd slip in moments of where you you sort of feel like you understood her and and then right away oh god she said that and you'd like oh you'd be appalled um right up to the very end of the movie where donald sutherland in this very quiet somber scene in a dining room says i don't think I know if I love you anymore. And the conversation, which was much more than that, ends right there. She goes upstairs and starts packing a bag. She takes a piece of luggage out of a closet and all of a sudden she gasps. I mean, all of a sudden it seems to hit her emotionally what's just happened. And you think, okay, she's going to stop and she's going to go downstairs. She's going to take Donald Sutherland in her arms and it's going to be okay. But no, she gasps, and she, but then she collects herself and she pushes it all away and she continues to pack her bag. And the next thing we know, there she is leaving in a taxi. You know? Oh my God. You know, I mean, it's not really a spoiler alert because this is 1980 folks, but uh, you know, as I saw the ending of the film, I was surprised to a small degree only because you don't always see the the husband character being the fragile one but also the strong one at the same time and you know the 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 strong and silent cold one the mother is actually so fragile that she can't let people see it but that's sort of the way that you know things used to go back then. I mean, if if a woman had a child out of wedlock, she disappeared, she went away, she went somewhere. And what happens to the mother when she can't cope with her reality? Well, she's going away. Mm-hmm. So, so we assume that she will hopefully get some help with her problems, but for the purposes of the story, she just goes away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess in my mind... Because that ending is like, it's very bittersweet um, because even as she's leaving, the last scene is with Donald Sutherland and Timothy Hutton. And we know, we just know in that one brief scene that they're, they're going to be okay. 
no matter what happens to the mother, but they're they're going to be okay. We just know it. They've been through worse. Yeah, and uh, so you can't say it's a happy ending, but at least you, at least you know that, mm-hmm. uh, and that's enough. That's enough for this movie uh, to end with in a very very satisfying way. Mm-hmm. What we were talking before we started recording about the relationship between the psychiatrist and the kid, mm-hmm. Jed Hirsch and Timothy Hatton. And we were talking about how at first, at least I didn't, I wasn't sure I liked this guy, the psychiatrist. And I wasn't sure he was good for Timothy Hutton, you know, his character. I, and, uh, and there's a, you, you go through a series of uh, many scenes with these two characters who are by themselves. And by the end of it, you know, you know that he is being helpful, that he is being kind, that he is being professional, but but very, very sensitive. But it's interesting to me that at the beginning, you you just they they are not getting along. They're not, you know, it takes a while. I found that really interesting. Yeah, I think that um, the role of the psychologist in this was that he was sort of the devil's advocate because, you know, when the son, Conrad, decides that he needs to see a therapist because his dad has been encouraging him to, um, you don't know what to make of it because, you know, he, he gets into the office and everyone has their their own style of practicing you know, um, their, their craft or their medicine. But, um, at first I was a little put off that he seemed hesitant to give the boy what he wanted, which, you know, was medication. He, the boy felt like he couldn't cope with all that he'd been, you know, the cards he'd been dealt, but that's part of the story. Just like the mother is old fashioned and wants to keep things private. I think, the you know the relationship between the patient and the doctor develops through the story and you're supposed to realize that he couldn't give him that right away because he didn't really know if that was going to help him he had to you know um come to an understanding of what he needed mm-hmm. there's another thing i want to talk about and we do have to go soon but i i think this is interesting to look you know I, I rewatched this for the first time in quite a while, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And <clears throat> there were a couple of things that really stood out for me. Number one, there's not a single black face <laughs> or any person of color anywhere in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and today, uh, you know, uh, being, you know, what we hope or to use the lingo of today, we hope we're more woke than previously uh you gotta look at the movie and think what the what the hell whatever is no person of color anywhere in this mm-hmm. movie what does that mean and all i can say is well it was 1980 first of all uh and i think there's a reason that the story and I guess this would have to certainly go back to the author uh, that it was set in a very upper class neighborhood. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus, 
Did you see that school? <laughs> uh, did you see all those well-dressed uh, kids? Well, and the house. And the house? Th- these were freaking rich people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there's no possible way that a black family could be rich and affluent at that time, I guess. Anyways. I mean, Bill Cosby wasn't even on his own sitcom yet. Now, see, the Bill Cosby family would have fit into this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I don't know what to make of it all, you know, except that I think the reason the author put this movie into that context was kind of simple. And it's that, look, as much money and wealth and beautiful home and beautiful school and all these great things that they had where they could go off and play golf and, you know, fly to another state and play go- all these wonderful, they were still afflicted. Mm, money doesn't buy happiness. Terrible. Yeah. They were afflicted with this terrible thing that happened and the depression and all the repercussions. And it didn't matter how much money they had. This was a broken, broken family. And, you know, I think it was highlighted by this affluent neighborhood. I mean, the sumptuous, it's exquisitely filmed and it exquisitely shows this neighborhood and the home and everything. Like, you know, holy Jesus, do people really live like this? Yeah, I, you know, I guess they do. Uh, but, but I think that's why. What What do you think? I mean, looking at it, did it, I mean, did it jump out you? There's just not a single person of color in this movie. Well, I mean, I, I, I myself grew up out in the middle of nowhere, and there were no people of color where I went to school. I mean, I had 92 people, and there was a cow pasture across the street. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know. Not exactly the scenario in this movie. <laughs> right. But, I mean, it is the setting for the. Um, you know, the, the, the Brat Pack films to come, the John Hughes films were all sort of that uh, well-to-do, you know, suburban family. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, certainly Midwest. I mean, this this takes place in a Chicago suburb, and the John Hughes films, I think, are, are similarly. But, um, you know, uh, I, I found this to be enjoyable, and it, it certainly is a reflection of how things have changed it's important to watch because it helps you to understand the struggles of people are the same whether you come from well-to-do or not. Um, and if you need a, uh, a a bright spot, a happy thought in watching this, I mean, it's 1980. You get to see Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland get waited on in a mall restaurant. I mean, it looked like they were in the bathroom because there was tile everywhere and a waitress came over and it, <laughs> it looked like it was friendlies for goodness sakes. But um, the other bright spot in this movie is up and coming actress and um, co-star of Kevin Bacon's in the movie. He said, she said, Elizabeth McGovern has one of her first film roles in Ordinary People. And she's oh. one of Conrad's uh, girl or women friends. And yeah. more recently, people would notice her 
being on the BBC's Downton Abbey as the wife. And I can't tell you how many times I've mistaken that lady as the mother from Gilmore Girls, but Elizabeth McGovern got her start in Ordinary People. And she just reminds me of a more outgoing and impish Cindy Williams. (laughs) Well, oh, that's true, you know. I see that, too. I remember that one of the first things you told me about this movie after seeing it was how much you enjoyed the comedy aspect that Elizabeth, uh, she brought to the role, brought to the story. (laughs) She's a terrible bowler. (laughs) Yeah, that bowling scene. Uh, There's wonderful awkwardness. Oh, my God. That's the other thing that I just, you know, probably why I related to this movie so much was because of the Timothy Hutton character and how awkward, socially awkward he was. Oh my God. And uh, the scene where they're bowling is just, uh, it's funny. Then uh, a subsequent scene when they're in the restaurant and uh, uh, some of the good old boys. Yeah, the good old boys come in and make a little trouble, but it upsets things. It upsets Conrad. And she starts laughing. And it, it's it, the date ends very badly. But the best thing is when she recovers from that and explains to him that she's socially awkward. She says, when yes. I get nervous, I laugh about things. Yeah. I, th- I think maybe... One of the reasons I saw this three or four times was because I just, I felt so socially awkward, just terribly socially awkward. And, uh, you know, here was this guy on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a big, big deal. She was a great part of, the, of that movie and brought some really needed comedic moments so we're gonna go ahead and tell you what else you might enjoy if you liked ordinary people and if you haven't watched it yet i found it on paramount plus that's the uh the the renamed version of cbs all access so um something you might enjoy if you liked ordinary people is a film from 78 it stars diane keaton and geraldine page And this is a film about three sisters finding their lives spinning out of control in the wake of their parents' sudden unexpected divorce. This is not a comedy, folks. It is called Interiors. Well, you might think you you might think it's a comedy because it's directed by Woody Allen. It is not a it is not a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was very impressed by this movie when it came out, and I could see why. Uh, you thought of this. Um, it's it's very much well. The title "Interiors." Um, what that means is it's about the interior of of these characters' lives. It's what's going on in their heads. It's very cerebral, uh, not like what's going on in the heads of the characters in ordinary people. So, I, I, I it's a good recommendation. Um, my recommendation is another Robert Redford uh, directed movie that we mentioned earlier, uh, also about a family uh, that's somewhat broken by events. Um, beautiful, devastating, incredibly moving. 
a river runs runs through it, uh, directed by Robert Redford. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, and what isn't Brad Pitt in that? Uh, yes. And um, I'm forgetting his name now. The guy that played the husband in Steel Magnolias. Um, I know who you mean. He <laughs> um, played the uh, he played Scarrett. the father character, T- Tom Scarrett. Tom Scarrett, yeah. Uh, 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 a lot of people you'd know in that movie, but uh, I, I recommend it because it's an it's another movie by Redford, but also another movie about uh, complex relationships in a family. Uh, this is more of a period piece. It, it takes place the fifties. They're about, anyways, incredibly good. Totally recommend it. Okay, so before we go ahead and tell the folks uh, what's coming down the pike for our next show, let us know who is in the chat room tonight as you look over the balcony. We'd like to say thank you so much for Tommy Hash Browns, <clears throat> our pal, above all pals, always here to support us. And also, looky there, it's your hubby, Billy Star Sage. Thank you guys for coming by. Okay, so we're out here in the lobby, and uh, as I've mentioned, there's many things that have gone on here in the past, including a magic act. Grab that bag of coins for me, sir. Oh, you mean this one? There you go. Okay, I think that's over on my side here. Alrighty, so what do we have? From the director of West Side Story and Pajama Party, a young nurse becomes determined to reach an unresponsive teenage cerebral palsy patient by encouraging her to write to her favorite rock singer, Elvis Presley. Introducing future star of Coppola's Cotton Club, Diane Lane. Also with appearances by Ms. Michael Learned and Mary Wicks. Next time on Matinee Minutia, Touched by Love. Oh, Ms. Michael Learned. She was Mama Waltz on the Waltz. I love her. She was. And I'm gonna, I love Mary Wicks, too. Yes, I'm going to take this opportunity to let you folks know that there is a privilege to being a member of our listening audience. If what? You, yes, if you join our Facebook group, just search for Matinee Minutia. I'll let you spell that out on your own time there. But uh, Oh, no, that's yeah. terrible. <laughs> that's a terrible thing to tell them to do. Uh, so we, uh, but yeah, maybe you better look it up. We have these little get-togethers from now and then uh, that we call a watch party. And we're going to watch the next film that we'll be discussing on, on Friday, November 19th going to do it ahead of the show it's going to be a week from tomorrow which uh you know probably be after um you know you hear this but anyways on saturday the 13th of november we're going to be watching touched by love at 5 p.m eastern so look for our facebook group for an invite yeah join us uh it's fun uh you'll you'll uh, people can comment right and Mm -hmm. And they can hear us uh, chitter chat, uh, comment as well. You'll laugh, you'll um, cry, you'll bring your own snacks. 
Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, you know, it's not it's not watching the movie by yourself is what I mean. Mm -hmm. This is a different experience. So come on and, and be part of one of our watch parties. All right, sir. So in the uh, ways of the old days of radio, would you go ahead and say good night, Gracie? Good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univospods.net, click the tower for streaming audio. Enter Discord for our chat room. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. This has been an Alibug production. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net.